Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for these people. Thank you for your word. And as we open 1 Samuel chapter 19 this morning, I ask God that your spirit would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, while we were in chapter 18, we um, read about Saul's two overt attempts on David's life and also the two covert attempts on David's life. And we also read how uh, very successful uh, David was and how he was loved by Saul's children, uh, Michael and Jonathan, and he was loved by all the people of Israel except for Saul. So today we're, we're going to be looking at four different times that David escaped from Saul, and we'll see that that we can at times be treated like David and, and that we, like David, uh, we, we might be loyal, we might be competent, we might be good, and we might be trying to do the right things all the time, but we won't always be treated well or appreciated. Verse 1, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel." You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Here we see that Saul spoke with his staff and told them that he wanted David dead. So, David's good friend steps in, Jonathan, and he spoke up for David. And even though it was against his own father, it's against his own blood. And so we see here that Jonathan intervened for David and he sought to reconcile David to his father. And you notice how Jonathan doesn't overpromise. Right? He doesn't kind of embellish or do something that he's not able to do. He, he doesn't promise that he can do anything for David. He just simply says that he's going to speak to his father. And it seemed that the talking and the reasoning, it, it, it caused Saul to change his heart. And, and we read how Jonathan appealed to Saul's morals, how he uh, had a sense of fairness. He understood that. And then Jonathan brought to the forefront that, that David didn't sin against you and that he, he actually benefited you. And Jonathan appealed to Saul's sense of gratitude and that, that David risked his life to kill Goliath. And then Jonathan appealed to the sin it would be if he killed an innocent man. So all of this good logical reasoning, it made Saul swear this oath that he wasn't going to kill David. And in these verses we see that Saul's son, Jonathan, intervened to protect David. And this was David's first escape. And it allowed David back into the king's courts, but the the peace doesn't last long. Verse 8, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So we see here Saul tries to spear David again, but this time 
David knew it was for him. The, the other times, he wasn't so sure. Maybe he's just in a bad mood. I don't know. But now he knows that this is for him. What caused Saul to break his oath? He just made one, right? And so you read that in verse 8, it was because of David's successes. Saul's true character is revealed by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, why did Israel want a king in the first place? Why did they want a king? You have to look back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. It says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now the original reason for a king was that he would provide this military leadership, and most likely against the Philistines. Now that uh, Saul is king, Saul disregards a successful military commander in the person of David when he was the one that was supposed to be out there in the forefront fighting battles. That's why they wanted a king. But David is sent out, and he's doing this stuff. And so it seems as though Saul has lost sight of the reason for his position. And you notice that David struck the Philistines in chapter 19, verse 8, and then Saul tries to strike David in verse 10. And then that word struck in verses 8 and 10, it's the same Hebrew word. And then you notice that the Philistines fled in verse 8, and then David flees in verse 10. And so it's apparent that Saul has forgotten the reason for his leadership. That the reason for leadership was, was not to keep it for yourself, but, but to serve the people with it. And so this was David's second escape, and then he ran home. And so you can imagine when David got home to his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, and you can imagine this intense conversation that they had at their breakfast nook that night, that they were whispering to one another in the dark and wondering what was going to happen next. Like, honey, what, what am I going to do? Your dad's after me. He's going to kill me. And so, verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. The word for image there is teraphim. And it's the same word used in Genesis chapter 31 when uh, Rachel... Uh, hid the household gods in, in, in a camel's saddle from her father Laban. So chapter 31, verse 34 of Genesis. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. So we see in Genesis how small these household gods are. But, but the teraphim in, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, this is a more life-size one. It's large enough to replicate David in bed. I was at this party store last week. And um, I was shopping for decorations for my daughter's birthday party. And so I was walking in there, and, and there was this life-size cutout of a cop. And um, it took me back because I, I was just wondering, you know, why is that cop mad-dogging me? Like, what was wrong with him? And so I'm carrying my daughter in the party store. And, and, um, and, he, and I, I, walk, I walk around, right? And, and, I, and this, this small cop, because it's not really life-size, because they're about like 5'2 or so. so. So I thought that this cop had Napoleon complex on me or something. So, so I walked to the very end of the store because that's where my wife sent me, to the very end of the store of this big warehouse to get a pinata. And so she told me to, to go to the furthest corner. It's right there up on the ceiling. That's where it is. So I'm walking back, and there was the cop again. And uh, I thought to myself, Self? Those little cops are fast. And so... He was at the front of the store and he was at the back. And, and so he was still mad-dogging me, too. I didn't do anything. Like, 
So anyway, back to Michael and her little cop. Um, verse 14. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? First it was Saul's son, Jonathan, who intervened to protect David and, and provide a way out. Then David escaped himself. That was the second escape. And now this third escape, it's his daughter. It's Michael who, who intervened and allowed for David to escape. And so Saul's own children are protecting David from their own father. And it's interesting whom the Lord chooses to intervene in our life, isn't it? You remember Exodus chapter 2, when, when Pharaoh's daughter protected baby Moses from Pharaoh. And it's just these unexpected people, unexpected protections from God. And so you think about this. How many other ways could Moses have survived? Someone else picked him up. The decree was still out to kill all the baby boys, right? Interesting how God works. So this is the third escape. And, and out of the three escape episodes, only once did David escape on his own abilities. So... We need people. We need people. We need each other. We can do some things by ourselves, but if we want a greater chance at success, a greater chance to accomplish what God has desired for us to do, then we need the help of other people. And sometimes that help comes from places we just wouldn't expect. So now we find David running out of options. The very people that could have saved him, the ones closest to the king that could have saved him, they can't. And, and they helped him buy some time, and they helped him escape, but they couldn't save him. And Jonathan, his best friend, the crown prince, couldn't deliver him. David can't save himself. His wife, the king's daughter, couldn't save him. And daughters have a hold on their dads, and she couldn't do it. Right? So now he runs to a man of God, Samuel. And we'll see if Samuel's able to do anything. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, the, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day and all the, that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? So we have this map of Ramah just to give you a point of reference of where uh, Naoth is. And in this section of Scripture, is this meant to tell us what prophetic worship services are or how they're to be held? Or, or was it about why Saul took his clothes off? Or What's the point of verses 18 through 24? So Saul sends three groups to arrest David. But when they all get to Naoth and Ramah, they all start prophesying with Samuel and his guys. They all fall under the influence of prophesying, and they're not able to get to David. 
So Saul took it upon himself to go because it just wasn't getting done. He took it into his own hands. And before he gets there, the Spirit of God falls on Saul and he starts prophesying. And what's the point of all this? What is the text telling us? What is God doing here? So let's first define prophesying or prophesied. So in ancient Hebrew, uh, this word took on the meaning of being under the influence of God's Spirit. And it was connected with being in ecstasy. Right? So perhaps we could call it having some charismatic experience in our day. So here Samuel is presiding over this prophesying, and Samuel is highly regarded by this text. So, so one would think that this behavior must be acceptable. And you remember that Saul had such experiences when he was anointed. And these types of experience took place in Moses' time also in Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 29. Let's read that really quickly. Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 29. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on high and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, and one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the world's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? And you notice that Moses thought their behavior was positive in verse 29. It wasn't widespread, according to verse 25, but it did take place in the Old Testament. And so how are we to view these types of experiences here? And and what is bad about this experience in our text? And what is good about this experience in our text? What's bad? From a negative point of view, from Saul's point of view, this, this was negative because it prevented him from arresting David. Secondly, it allowed David time to escape. And thirdly, perhaps probably embarrassing for him to be without his kingly clothes, his outer clothes, right? But from a positive point of view, David was saved from being murdered. And secondly, Saul got to experience the presence of God again. Right? He experienced it at his anointing as a king, and perhaps this was the Lord reminding Saul what it's like to be right with God. And how it was like in his first encounter with the Lord. And maybe the Lord was helping Saul see how he was wrong. And some of us may be in a backslidden state. Some of us may be kind of falling away from the Lord. And we forget how it was when we were first there. And perhaps the Lord is bringing him back to this. This is how it is when you're right with me. And thirdly, Saul taking off his clothing. So something to clear up here in verse 24. It doesn't necessarily mean totally naked. Most scholars think that that what Saul took off was his outer garment and he left on his inner garment, his long linen tunic, the garment that everyone wore near their skin, that, that Saul took off the distinctive clothing that he wears as king, the distinctive uh, designated clothing, the thing that identifies his station and his position in life, that's what he took off. So from a positive point of view, Saul was taking off this distinctive clothing signifying his kingship. The very thing that he sold his soul to, 
to retain. The very thing that, that Saul was addicted to, the very thing that drove him to jealousy, in this experience, Saul is momentarily freed from this, this savage grip that, that it's keeping him, this, this desire to be powerful as a king, that's being stripped off. And we see that Saul is no longer in control. That, that Saul can't play religion anymore and just do religious things. That, that God is in control. God is controlling Saul. And perhaps for that day, Saul is truly freed from being self-destructive. Kind of like dying to ourselves. Kind of like stripping ourselves of those things that we hold that grip us so much that we can't have this relationship with God and we got to cast those things off. And so Saul was being put under God's control and because of this, David was protected. And this is another episode of escape, another episode of protection. But this one's a little different because God is getting directly involved. Right? And other times it was this indirect way that you know Jonathan stepped in, uh, he escaped on his own, Michael stepped in, but here we have God directly stepping in. David's fourth escape, his fourth way out. And it's not Samuel that delivered David. He ran to Samuel, the religious guy, oh, maybe the prophet can save me. It's God himself. So David's cornered, right? He, there's nowhere else he can go. He, he tried running home, he tried running away, he tried reconciling. He's running out of options. You know, Jonathan tried. Michael tried. He has nowhere else to go. Samuel. That guy will know what to do. Right? And it, it looks like his time is up. Saul is coming. There's nowhere else to go. No one else can bail him out except for God. God. And the Spirit of God directly intervened and he caused Saul to be powerless. And I think that's the point. Of verses 18 through 24. It's not about Saul's striptease or, or the prophecy of Samuel or anything like that. It, it's about how God protected his servant David. The word escaped is five times in this chapter. And, and so it's God, how, how God pr- provided the escape, how he provided the protection, and with God's own raw power, how he simultaneously, how God can draw Saul to repentance while protecting David. He's He's great. The way he works things out, he can do many things at one time. And so he draws Saul to repentance by reminding Saul how it was when he was anointed and walking with the Lord. That you need to strip yourself of these outer things that are holding you down. And God wanted Saul to repent. God, God loved Saul. And the power of the Spirit of God who, who can render the most powerful man powerless, harmless, still drawing him to repentance. And even though the Lord protected David and he didn't want David touched, he still wanted Saul to be right with him. So, are we right with God? How many opportunities has, has God given us to repent? To get right with Him and, and we have not taken Him on that opportunity. And we can see from this text that deliverance, it's, it's ultimately dependent on the Lord Himself and, and that, that what He wants is for, you, for us to come to repentance. And we, can, and we can rest knowing that the deliverance is dependent on God and that nothing is going to happen to us unless God allows it to. And another thing we can count on is that knowing that we have a Lord that draws us to repentance even when we seem so far away from Him. 
that he still draws us in. See, Saul was far from the Lord. He wants to kill a commander in his army. His heart is that hardened. Saul was far from the Lord, but, but, but God was drawing him back. And now notice how diverse God is and how diverse he is in, in how he works. Right? Sometimes he uses his own spirit. Other times he uses actions like dodging a spear and fleeing from the scene. Other times he uses this drama, coming up with a plan of escape with your spouse and sneaking out the window. And other times he uses logic and reasoning like he does with his son uh, Jonathan and with Saul. So God is really diverse in how he works. And so let us appreciate his creativity, his diversity. And so often we try to put God in a box, right? And, and say, you know, he only works in certain ways. I can't see how he possibly can deliver me out of this thing. Or how can he do this at the same time as this? That's impossible. When I was praying, I had four circumstances in my life, all at the same time. So I was in pastoral school. I was praying about, oh, Lord, what, what ministry do you have for me after I, I graduate? And secondly, at my job, I, I, I really enjoyed my job, but I wanted something more. So I was like, oh, how am I going to get a better job of going to ministry? What's this going to be? The third thing is my parents were totally codependent on me. So they asked me to move back into their home because uh, they couldn't afford it. And so I moved back in. But the Lord did amazing things there. He, he had me reconcile with my dad, who I didn't talk to for years because I hated the guy. But he called me out of the blue and, and said, I, I need you to come home because I, I, I can't afford to live on, on my own or we can't afford to live on our own. And so I did, and he worked some amazing things there. And then fourthly, I was dating this girl for five and a half years who lived in Milpitas. I was in L.A. at the time. So then this job opportunity opened up where it would be a job transfer to San Francisco while I was praying these four different things. And so I didn't know how to reconcile all these things, like getting married, moving from codependent parents, getting a better job, where's my ministry? And then the Lord, as I was praying these things, provided something for me in San Francisco. So he provided me at this great job, this great promotion, to where I could kind of start weaning my parents off of the codependency. I found this Bible study in, in Berkeley and attended that, and that's what the church is now, eight and a half years later. And then that girl, the Lord said no. I moved here, and, and as soon as we started hanging out together more closely, he was like, all right, now you can break up with her. Like, what? I got a ring? I got a, what are you talking about? But, but yeah, he said, uh, break up with her. And so I did. It was mutual. The Lord spoke to her too. And it was weird because everything was going great. She was a great Christian gal. I'm okay Christian guy. But it didn't work out. But he answered all those things that I couldn't figure out in my head. How was he going to do all this stuff? But in one move, like, well, go up there. Done. Wow. That's incredible. So God, God is like, you can't put him in a box. He, if you pray, he's going to figure something out. Right? And, and so he's so different from my dad. My earthly father, bless his heart. He, I love that guy. Really, he's the funniest man I know. My dad is the same. So something that's really telling is, is ice cream. If I go to an ice cream store with my dad... I can be sure he will choose vanilla. All the time. Vanilla. I, I don't, that's, God's not like that, though. Right? God, God is unpredictable. Like, what are you going to choose, God? Don't know. He'll make something up. 
like Rocky Road, which is from Oakland. And so he doesn't always use the same methods. We can't put God in a box. And God uses like a variety of ways. God, God, is, God is this fresh of breath air. God is so creative. And so may we delight in that. May we delight in God who, who is so creative in our circumstances and diversity in there. And, and especially when things look really bad in our life, when they look really dark and grim, to know that God has something planned out according to his will. And it's going to be good. It's going to work out. And nothing can be so bad that he can't deliver something good from it. And in God's diversity, we can expect an unexpected twist like in chapter 19. In, in, in chapter 19, we see that it's Saul's son that comes to David's aid. Right? The, the one closest to and, and we see that Saul's daughter came to David's aid. And it's not that we'd expect a king's own children to come against him for a shepherd boy, for a pizza delivery boy. That, you wouldn't expect that when you're reading this. Like, why would they step in for this guy? That's weird. But that's how God worked. That's how God cho- chose to work. So, so what does this lead us to do with our own life? Well, let's look at worship. Because that's where it led the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, or Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. See, we can't trace God's ways. God God is just unbelievably imaginative. So when when we look at our own problems and we just can't see, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? You know that God works in these delightful ways. That he's not confused about your problems. He's not, he's not puzzled. He, he's got it all planned out. That, that God is imaginative and interesting. And if you, if you think he's, he's boring, you're misinformed. I mean, just look at animals. Look at the giraffe. Isn't that weird? Look at an elephant. Look at, that's weird. But he's just imagining. He's just, you know, that's how he is. So we can't trace his ways. And you notice that there's this instruction from God's protection. Right, you're looking back at chapter 19, we, we saw these four episodes of deliverance, protection, escape. But just because David has escaped four times doesn't mean that he's out of the woods, doesn't mean that it's over. Actually, this running and stuff, this hard time, it's just begun. It's just begun. It, it, it starts out all discombobulated and all this mess of running. But if you read the rest of 1 Samuel, that's, the, that's a lot of the rest of the book. This is just the start. Some of you may be going through a rough time, but you're like, oh, when's this going to end? I don't know. It might just be the start. But David does receive some instructions, right? So what are they? Well... If God has just allowed him to survive these four episodes of danger, if God has preserved his life safely to this point, now isn't that a good indication that that God is with him and that God will most likely continue to be with him? So, So don't you think that David can find some security in God in that God is with him? There's some experiences in that, some lessons to be gleaned from that. So we don't know if David understood all of this at this point, but wouldn't it make sense for him to just kind of stop and think to himself, God is with me. God is with me. If I was delivered four times, God cares for me. 
He has something for me. And it should be a sign of hope for David that God is with him. So for us as believers in Jesus, oftentimes the clearest evidence that we haven't been deserted by God isn't that we've come through trials unscathed and and we're just victorious and we've come through all these things and we're, yeah, God delivered me. The clearest evidence that we often have that God has not left us is that we're still on our feet in the middle of our trials. That we're still standing. We're still here. Just like David at the end of this chapter. He's still standing. So how much can we pull from David's life into our life? Can we say that what God did for David, He's going to do for me? I don't know. I don't know. I I do know that God promised David that, that He was going to be king and that God doesn't go back on His word. So whatever word you've received from God, you can hold on to that. He hasn't anointed us all kings, but He's made other promises to you. And you can hold on to that. So whatever word you receive from Him, you can hold on to that. But we can be sure that God will protect us until our work is done. If your work is not done, you're fine. Just keep going. Your work is done, you're going home. It's good. Right? So the thing is, we don't know when our work is done. We don't know what He's appointed us to. You just got to keep on living in the kingdom, for the kingdom, and doing what you do until your time's up. And And that's up to Him. But, but it assures us that God is with us until our work is done. When it is, we can go home. Right? And not all of us have to go through these David experiences, but we do have to experience David's God. And that's what's important for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul wrote, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So hopefully we don't have to escape through a window from people who want to kill us and end up writing Psalms 59 as a treatment for ourselves. That, that, I mean, that would be nice, right? To just enjoy God's diversity and His instruction and His protection without any of that stuff. But it doesn't always happen that way. So let's close from reading Psalm chapter 59. Because David actually wrote this in response to what he was going through. We won't read the whole thing. I'll just read verses 1 through 4 and then 16 and 17. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy. That was the rock metal band back then. Uh, A miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. Verse 16. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. We're going to be re-entering a time of worship uh, with, with music. Not that a sermon is not a time of worship. And during this time, reflect upon a few things. One of them, how many times has God given us an opportunity to come before Him in repentance? 
And we, as we have these communion elements here uh, along the side here and in the front, that you can come and as you repent before the Lord and get right with God and right with each other, that these are here for you. And also, to remember that whatever you're kind of going through now, it, it might just be the beginning, and that might be a disheartening thing. That might be just a really depressing thing. But you have to know that you're still standing. You're still here. So God is faithful. God is still with you. Because He's provided escape. He's provided shield. He's provided various things to bring you through. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for uh, loving us. And thank you for drawing us to repentance and giving us chances over and over again. Let us remember what it was like when we first were met by you and how right that was. In Jesus' name, amen.